Welcome to the Med Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, my friends? We got an especially timely episode today with returning guest podcast alum, Raging Capital Ventures, Bill Martin. Bill was way ahead of the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank. On January 18th, he penned a tweet thread detailing there were bigger problems at the bank than just their large exposure to the stress venture world. Bill gives us his view on how the situation has unfolded and the implications for both the banking and venture capital ecosystem going forward. We then spend some time on the convergence of public and private markets, high-level thoughts on all the stock markets, what's going on, including some areas he sees opportunities on both the long and short side. Some fun names in there. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Raging Capital Ventures, Bill Martin. Bill, welcome back to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Meb. I I can't believe it. Um, Listeners, if you want the full Meb Bill background story, you go back to episode 170. We'll put it in the show note links, but it's been three years, man. I knew you Just a quiet three years. Nothing been going on. (laughs) I knew you when. Congrats on all your success and the growth of the podcast. It's amazing. Yeah, man. Well, you know, I think you, I can't say retire because you're more active than ever, but you decided to get rid of OPM, other people's money. You're now running family office. But um, I look back over the last three years and damn, man, you've been active. You just had a new kid. You went viral on Twitter. I mean, I thought this was going to be more of a mellow period and it's like the exact opposite. Well, it's it's like the Godfather. You you try to get out, and they keep pulling you back in. So, so listeners, Bill is one of my favorite entrepreneur investors, which is really the best type of investor because you uh, kind of understand all the agony and ecstasy and what it means to run a company. And if you want the background again, check out the last episode. But we're going to dive into a lot of new territory today, and I feel like we got to start with the most obvious jumping off point, which is a tweet that you had that went totally viral that was talking about Silicon Valley Bank. 
obviously this is like the biggest story of the year so far and you were ahead of the uh ahead of the trend back in january i think right when was the uh when were you uh tweeting away and by the way the twitter handle is what raging raging ventures raging ventures so give us a story yeah you know i was following silicon valley bank quite closely last year with the idea that it could be an interesting short because of all their venture loan exposure you know and, and kind of saw firsthand all the issues in in the valley and and what was going on there. Um, but as I dug in, realized quickly that the bigger problem was just an enormous amount of fixed rate, long duration mortgage exposure that they had bought at the top of the market in 2021, and they had not marked through the balance sheet of the book value. And so, uh, you know, I ended up coming into earnings in January. On January 18th, I did a lengthy thread on the situation and the way I saw it. Um, I thought management was going to have to come clean with earnings and guidance for the year. And it turns out they didn't, but you know, I put my thoughts out there and it's amazing how quickly things have unfolded. Yeah. But also like how long it took to unfold because it was January and you feel like the earnings, like you'd kind of expect to start to see the story get picked up and it took a few more months. I like, I wonder how much of the executives were like, man, we got to do some sort of hail Mary, raise some equity, but the story was actually kind of simple. Anyway, walk us through. So what, what happened? Give us the, the sort of expert summary of what happened and any uh, eventual takeaways. I was getting ratioed for one of my takeaways on, uh, on Twitter on the topic too. So love to hear uh, what, uh, what you think. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, I think management was trying to whistle past the graveyard and I think they were praying for a Fed pivot. And I don't think they would have done anything, frankly, if it wasn't for Moody's threatening a, a credit downgrade. You know, I actually had puts that were expiring in February that expired worthless. So it was a very profitable short for me. But you know, I put that thread out there in January and the stock quickly moved 20, 25% in my face. So that's how they go. But you know, rewinding a bit, you know, I think the story of it was we had a, you know, five to 10 years of really, really low interest rates. And management got complacent around that. And then you had the venture bubble in you know, 21 and, and 20 and huge amounts of money f- came into these venture companies and they showed up on the deposits at Silicon Valley Bank. And uh, they were basically paying nothing for it. And they were complacent and they got a little greedy and they decided they were going to buy you know, long duration mortgages to pick up two percentage points or one and a half percentage points. Ridiculous stuff in retrospect, but yeah, that was the situation then. You know, what was interesting from a short point of view was because there's a lot of banks that have this type of exposure, most of them not on the scale of Silicon Valley Bank, obviously. But what was really interesting from a catalyst point of view was the fact that their customers, all those venture backed companies, were burning cash and the venture markets were closed. And so all that money that had come in was also leaving. And, you know, I thought that was going to be the, the issue that. They were going to have to face this year. So, like, it was such a basic, fundamental error. It's odd that like there's no you. You spend a lot of time on boards. You're on a couple of boards. You've you've done a activist campaigns in the past. Do you think this is like a, a board oversight issue? Do you think it's a just a, a failure at the C level? Because presumably there had to have been five, ten, twenty, fifty people that this should have crossed their desk and they said, "Okay, hold on a second, like." This is the one, the one thing we have to do is not get this wrong. You don't even have to get it right. You just can't get it wrong. What do you think that like the major failing was? Yeah. 
you're right. I mean, this, the speed, uh, no, no one could have predicted that. I mean, that was remarkable and, uh, you know, it was certainly not what I foresaw happening, you know, in, in terms of who's at fault. I mean, I, I think it, it's on the laps of a lot of folks, you know, obviously management's running a company and they got greedy and complacent and they were inept to some degree, but, you know, I think customers are responsible. You know, I'm sympathetic to the startup CEO. Does he really have time to analyze bank balance sheets? Probably not. But if you're the CFO of Kleiner Perkins or Andreessen Horowitz, I think your job is to evaluate and diligence counterparty relationships. And the work here was not that difficult, Med. You know, they should have been doing this work. They should have been asking these questions. And I think it goes beyond that. If you look at the top three shareholders of the company, they were all passive holders. And so, you know, they were concerned about ESG and diversity and climate um, and all those, you know, quote, risks. But they weren't really focused on you know, basic rudimentary financial risk. And of course, regulators, they were out to launch. But, you know, let's be honest, regulate, regulators regulate to the last crisis. And, you know, interest rates did move quickly here. And, you know, the nature of held to maturity accounting is that you can kind of kick the can. If this was a hedge fund and you had $10 billion of equity and you bought $100 billion of 2% mortgages, you would have gotten a margin call probably last September or August, right? So it's a confluence of things. One of the things that was crazy to me, you mentioned like, okay, like individual depositors, like that's one thing. Roku, Circle, literally public companies. But there was some stat that it was like the top 10 depositors had like 13 billion. And if those are only two public companies, that means the other 10-ish are either private individuals or funds or something. And you know, my goodness, like, what were they th- like? What are they thinking? Like, like, like you, <laughs> you're putting your entire life at risk, not doing like a little bit of homework. And it's maybe it's a sign of the times. I don't know. Yeah. Look again, I, I, as you know, I spent 15 years running a hedge fund. So I was well-versed with short selling. Uh, we understood financial, you know, statements and balance sheets. We understood banks. And so, you know, had a little bit of an advantage there, but this was not difficult. I mean, you could look at their balance sheet and they disclosed the whole. You know, it was right there in plain sight that, you know, I think it's it was irresponsible of these customers not to pay attention. And I think also to some extent a little bit of a failure of imagination. You know, I I warned a number of my friends, not that I thought the bank was going to implode, but I said, Hey, I know you do a lot of business with these guys. Make sure you have backup credit lines, right? And make sure you have a plan. And you know, people kind of poopawed it because they just couldn't imagine something like that happening. Yeah. So the main takeaway, listeners, is follow Raging Ventures on Twitter because he uh, he was warned you. Um, how much of this was informed? You know, the, the nice thing about being an investor, particularly through multiple cycles. Look, you buy your first stock at ten. You were like me, probably trading from uh, the Virginia campus in the in the late nineties. Boom! You were involved with the. First Reddit before it was Reddit for uh, or Yahoo message boards even uh, raging uh, raging bull but you know you you were involved shorting regional banks back pre GFC a couple names uh, Bank of the Keys Silver State was that a similar situation or totally different how much of that was like informed you kind of keeping an eye on it to today yeah so you know raging capital I mean we managed a, a deep and diverse short book you know often with sixty or seventy individual names and a lot of different thematic bets so. You know, over the years, we were short everything from you know Insys Pharmaceuticals to to Valiant to uh, unfortunately some Tesla along the way, and you know a number of other names. 
coming into 08, uh, we were short a number of the subprime originators. We were short a lot of regional banks that had you know specific construction lending exposure in some exposed markets. And I'll, I'll tell you that those shorts took a lot longer to play out. <laughs> and uh, what really was remarkable here was how quickly this you know unfolded. It, it didn't take 9, 12, 18 months. And so it's even been challenging. Like once you have a short working, you're trying to find kind of similar profiles and similar names and you know kind of press those shorts too. And this is just like played out so super quickly that it's been kind of hard to kind of get the exposures on even. So obviously some of the bank ETFs just got absolutely pummeled. We've seen a couple other bodies sort of flow to the surface. How, I think the question for everyone is over the past few weeks has been, is this systemic? Is this uh, affect a lot of banks or, or is it just a couple of um, people behaving foolishly on the uh, periphery? I mean, you and I both know probably a lot of people who got those great mortgages. You know, they they brag about the two and a half percent thirty year mortgage they have, right? And so uh, that's good for that that uh, that real estate owner. It's not so good for the bank on the other side of that trade. And there's a lot of those loans out there. That said, you know, there's not a lot of banks that look like Silicon Valley Bank in terms of just the outsized exposure and. And uh, you know the percentage of uninsured depositors and what have you. So it's you know I think much more spread out through the system. But you know if you look at the public markets, I think it's they've done a pretty good job. You can see stocks like First Republic, and you can see Schwab over the last you know couple of weeks. Like there are certain stocks that you know have these exposures, and the market you know knows that and is reflecting that. I think broadly though, you know what's going to happen is. Particularly now that the regulators and rating agencies are, you know, focused on this, and investors are focused on this, and is that there's just going to be a broad period of de-risking and and kind of raising capital, and so just broadly, it's a regime change for the industry, and I think you'll see lower, you know, returns on equity moving forward because of that. Yeah, let's say Biden reads your tweet, loves the Meb Favor show, gives you a call and says, Bill, all right, you clearly saw around the corner some of this dummery. He's like, I want to improve the system and make, uh, you know, I, we get the diagnosis, some of these sub 300 billion banks are, are suspect. And I want to make the system better for depositors. What would you say? Uh, there seemed to me that there could be some potential fixes for uh, the way that it's set up today. You got any ideas? There's a good argument that the deposit insurance level should be raised, but I, I certainly don't think it should be unlimited. I think there's significant moral hazard. And if you think there's issues here, you can't imagine a banking world where you know all deposits are insured. You'd have you know mayhem and why not just charge for it though, right? Like it'd be like, all right, look, you want 250k, fine, so be it. You know, that protects a lot of the average depositor. But hey, you want a million, five million, ten million, fifty million, hundred million. That's fine. You're just going to pay an insurance fee for it, whether that's ten basis points. I don't know what the math would work out to. I think many would be totally happy to pay for that. Do you think that's a solution? I mean, it seems so simple. <laughs> it's an interesting idea. I, I think the real solution, though, is to let the free market, you know, do the work. And a big part of the reason we're in a situation is because rates were repressed for so long. And there was no yield. And so people had to go out on the curve to try to find any yield whatsoever. And it wasn't just bad behavior at banks. You know, you could look at major governments too. You know, a lot of the spending was enabled by rates at, you know, zero. And you think we have problems in the United States, uh, you know, in Europe, rates were negative. 
in a lot of markets. And you know, we, we worry about banks in the U.S. who are sitting on the other side of that two and a half percent mortgage. Question I ask is, you know, who's on the side of those Greek bonds and Italian bonds and Spanish bonds that have zero risk weights? That was a weird time. Looking back on that, like sometimes you see things in markets when you're in the middle of it, you're like, huh, okay, this is a little funky. And then looking back on it, you're like, wow, that really was a weird time. Like, you know, so many experiences we've had, you know, we graduated during the kind of internet boom, then the financial crisis, negative sovereigns all around the world. That was super weird. You know, to me um, and listeners, like a big takeaway from this is so basic. We did a podcast recently with Max My Interest, but we asked people, we say, you know, do you know what your savings checking account yields? And if so, how much? And the vast majority of people either don't know or it's like zero, like Bank of America, you're getting like 20 bips or something. But you can very easily today, this moment, go out and open an account in 10 minutes that will give you like 5 million FDIC and pay you 4%. So listeners, if you're not doing that, you're just lazy. Go do it. Hit pause. We can listen to Bill and Meb a little more, but protect that. It's just a kind of basic table stakes for your hard-earned cash. You can worry about all this alpha later. Anyway, that's my advice for the morning. Well, you have to, along those lines, you know, I, I took some of those CFOs of those VC shops to to hold their feet to the fire, but you have to ask why they were sitting in, you know, zero interest deposits too. Why weren't they, you know, picking up four points on their money? Well, I think we've seen, unfortunately, there's definitely some conflicty sort of benefits from a lot of the VCs that got a lot of extra benefits. And whether they forced their companies or you know people to, to have to bank with Silicon Valley, I think that's going to be problematic for them if they find out they have all these limitless benefits because it feels just kind of gross anyway. I think that's a very good point. And uh, my friends on the West Coast, I've, I've shared that view with them. First Republic in particular was known for providing very generous mortgage terms to their best clients. And, uh, you know, having come out of a very regulated hedge fund industry, the idea that in return for priming at Goldman Sachs, that they would give me a, a favorable mortgage on the side <laughs> as part of their full service, the regulators certainly would not have looked very friendly on that, nor would have my investor. Meanwhile, it, I had the, a hella hard time getting a mortgage because every time I went through like a three-month process, I mean, it took forever as a business owner, they'd get to the end and be like, oh, wait, you run a hedge fund? I'm like, I don't run a hedge fund. <laughs> Come on. I'd say, I have much simpler, plain vanilla business. They're like, no, you're a hedge fund manager. We don't trust you. Sorry. All right. So you, I see, I've seen you tweet. So, okay. So, so most banks probably are doing okay. You've also mentioned some that are kind of stand out on the opposite side. Any thoughts come to mind or um, any, uh, any names you think are, are kind of the bomb proof sort of uh, will benefit from this? In terms of long ideas, you mean? I mean, do you, I, I think you were saying some got it right. I think we were talking about maybe Fairfax. Who else were you talking about? I can't even remember. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Certainly, I've been more focused on on the short side, and I, I think we're pretty early in the cycle in terms of that playing out. You know, obviously, a lot of names drop very quickly, and you know, probably in a lot of cases, maybe a little bit of an overreaction. But just structurally, there's going to be short opportunities here because these banks need to de-risk, they need to raise capital, and I think that's going to be a really good theme for you know a while to come. You know, on the long side, uh, I have not bought any banks long, but uh, yes, uh, I do own some Fairfax, uh, and I own. Uh, another insurance company that's kind of a special situation, but you know Fairfax is a, a great example. This is run by Prem Watsa. It's the you know, Canadian insurer. 
And Prem took a lot of heat because you know he had a thirty-five billion dollar fixed income portfolio, and for you know basically a half a decade, he was sitting in one-year treasuries, earning almost nothing. And uh, you know, last year, while all of his insurance company peers took you know massive balance sheet hits because of their you know bond exposures on their portfolios, you know Prem was busy rolling his one-year treasuries into two-year treasuries and making four and five percent. And that's not only great from a net income point of view in terms of earnings from the portfolio, but it's enabled him to play offense in the insurance market because a lot of his competitors just can't write business because their balance sheets are smaller. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So let's rewind a little bit. You know, we, we had you on 2019. You've had a lot going on last few years. Uh, there's a pandemic in between. You decided to convert to a family office, which I feel is very trendy. Uh, you're, you're on the, you're on the, uh, the forefront of the trends. You sold one of your companies and still involved in a ton of ventures. So let's just kind of pick and choose some of these ideas that, uh, I mean, I really love insider score concept. Would love to dig into that too and kind of hear about the exit there. But let's begin. Any of those topics? What's the last few years been like for you, buddy? <laughs> well, I mean, it's been uh, an interesting few years for all of us, I think. But I think for me, uh, a number of projects that you know I had spent a good chunk of my career on kind of came to maturity and I've kind of got a little bit more of a clean slate moving forward. And and yes, I now manage my own capital under the Raging Capital Ventures umbrella. So uh, trendy as that is. Talking about Insider Score first, uh, that was a business that I co-founded with a partner way back in 2004, uh, focused on at first insider trading data, tracking what corporate insiders did and trying to find a needle in the haystack in terms of the best and most notable transactions to pay attention to. And over the years, built out a wonderful data business, wrapping you know, money flow data and institutional data and stock buyback data and a variety of other research and analytics around that core and built a really nice business servicing you know, 60 to 70 of the top 100 asset managers and you know, several hundred hedge funds and mutual funds. And uh, you know, we're fortunate in 2020, you know, a great market for kind of recurring subscription-based businesses. We decided maybe not a bad time to think about selling. And we had a private equity you know, buy the firm and, and combine it in, with another asset in the space. So it was a really nice close of that chapter. Tell me a little bit about what, what are the main insider takeaways as a PM? You know, And you're looking at these stocks, people love to talk about buying and selling. And I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions about what people are doing. Silicon Valley Bank, famously, uh, insiders were, were selling some in the period running up to uh, their demise. But what are some takeaways and also misconceptions when, because people love to talk about insider buying and selling? Yeah, it's a data set I'm obviously passionate about. That was the genesis of the you know, original idea for the service. I think the buy side is kind of well studied from an academic and you know, practical point of view. If people are putting up real dollars, you know, it's worth paying attention to that. Although there are you know, exceptions where people are trying to paint the tape and uh, and insiders make mistakes too. You can say Elon. You can say Elon. Just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually found, you know, and I, I think with Insider Score, one of the areas we really pioneered was actually paying attention to selling behavior, which you know a lot of investors tend to write off because you know people sell for a lot of reasons. They might be buying a new house or putting their kid in college, or they might just have too much exposure to that particular investment. But uh, you know, paying attention to certain screens like you know cfos who are you know having options that expire early 
you know, and exercising and exercising them prior to the ordinary expiration, uh, even when the stock's down, like picking out some different behaviors like that are really interesting. And then from a short perspective, I actually found it interesting paying attention to a lot of the 10B51 activity. Now, these are the planned program trading that insiders can enter into. The SEC has actually been scrutinizing them quite a bit and is looking to actually change the rules around that um, because there has been you know, apparently some abuse. I actually like paying attention to 10B51 selling activity or lack thereof, particularly at kind of stock option and stock comp heavy companies like tech companies, where you rarely see an insider buy at a, you know, a Google or a Toast. But it's very interesting where they stop selling. And paying attention to those signals can be really interesting, both on an individual company level, as well as a broader you know, sector level. How much of this can kind of be quantified and how much of it is like, it just gives you the broad landscape and you really got to dig in. Is there any just simple takeaways on how to approach this? Because so many people love to focus on like a one-off, like so-and-so just bought or so-and-so just sold. And without knowing the general landscape, it seems... Look, I think in the early days, there was a lot of alpha to be had, uh, particularly you know tracking buy transactions. You know these these forms used to be paper filed, right? And so there was an an edge to getting some of the early early filings. You know, like like anything else, those things get arbed out over time. And I think that markets are a lot more efficient. And and I think Insider Score played a role in that, right? I mean, we have data feeds into a number of the you know leading quantitative firms out there, so they're paying attention to that. You know, for me uh, as an investor, as a hedge fund manager, you know, I, I used it to kind of screen ideas. You know, if there's for example, if I'm interested in bank shorts right now, like, or if I was looking for bank longs, I might go and you know, there's hundreds of bank stocks, but I might create the short list to start from looking at uh, you know interesting kind of outlier behavior on the insider side. Yeah, I think the old phrase "success leaves traces" is uh, true on both the positive as the negative too. Uh, kind of tracking and following the terrible operators and CEOs as well as what they're up to. Can be equally as informative as, as tracking the good ones. Yeah, we we used to have a list at our fund of kind of we we call them bad actors, and they were a lot of them. Were they all based in like Utah and Vancouver and Jersey? There's some. There's like there's certain pockets where if like the CEO happens to be from, it's like a single. It's like a pink flag, maybe not a red flag, just like a pink flag. <laughs> yeah, Bo- Boca was a popular. Okay. Uh, you yeah. Know. <laughs> It didn't lie, right? If you saw one of those guys join a board or you know a crony of his get involved with a company, they don't usually change their skins. Yeah. As we look at sort of like the tapestry of, of like markets, you've been involved one foot in starting companies, another you know in sort of funding private companies, investing in public ones. It's become a bit of a blur over the past twenty years. You know, um, I think uh, there's been a lot of these crossover funds. Any general takeaways the last three, five years, you know, on, on how you think about the private and public side? Because I feel like um, I exist mostly in the public world, but I spend a lot of personal time on the private side. And I feel like vast majority of my public only friends are missing out on a lot. What's your general thoughts on kind of the, the blending and merging and what's going on with private and public? Yeah. Well, certainly, private markets have developed a lot. You know, some of that was a function of you know easy money, and you know was a bit of a blow off. But 
the fact is capital formation has gotten a lot easier on a private side and that market's got much more well-developed and uh, companies are staying private a lot longer and it's much more attractive and you know it's more expensive than it used to be to go public you know, there's real public company costs and there's real hurdles and distractions associated with it so it's a bona fide asset class and it's been interesting kind of watching that that mature you know interestingly though like you know i agree like there's a lot of really super cool companies on the private side particularly in technology and more you know entrepreneurial ventures that said you know we've been in a two-year bear market and you know all those tech companies that went out via SPACs and ipos they're all down 80 percent. and so i would actually argue you know today the relative value is in the public markets i mean a lot of those are not great companies but there are and i'm happy later on but you know there are some needles in the haystack there i've also found for my myself uh, as an investor i've grown to appreciate the differences and benefits of private versus public investing and you know specifically on the private side you know it really because of the illiquidity which a lot of people view as a disadvantage the upside of that is it is it forces you to be patient and take a very long-term time horizon and there's just been you know so many companies you know like like a toast for me or a gerson lehrman for me that you know if it was public i'm not good at sitting in my hands if i look at a stock price every day and you know i would have sold toast you know 20 times over if it traded in the public markets but you know because i was quote stuck in a private you know that forcing mechanism was was actually very very good for me this is a huge point and um we'll drill into this a little bit and i was gonna give you a little bit of shit because uh, the example i was gonna give you is say look on one hand amazing you were in at facebook at like a six billion dollar valuation but bill to be clear like it's a multi hundred billion dollar company now and i don't think you've held it the whole time so uh why are you such a piker in facebook this is a good example it's like public market investor you see something like five ten bagger you're like oh my god like hallelujah but just think of what if you had just held that we'd be, you know you'd be like a Winklevoss now <laughs> i've realized as an investor uh you know generating ideas is is something i do with ease i don't i don't have a problem generating ideas um you put me in front of a screen and i come to work every day i will find things to do and that's a strength and a weakness you know at, at the same time and i've grown to value and appreciate that you know there's a certain bucket of investments that yeah the hurdle rate has to be a lot higher going in because you you know you are illiquid and you're committed to that but that is a really good vehicle for those businesses that you think can really grow and be entrepreneurial over time whereas the public markets i'm not good at watching a high multiple tech stock even if it could be you know a 50 bagger over the next 10 years like if i'm looking at a trade every day i am not good at being patient and sitting on that you give me a value stock you know i that's totally fine uh, you know i'm i'm happy being as patient you know for very very long periods of time yeah i was recently at a conference in park city so shout out to the wallach beth crew they put on a great um event but uh for some reason they put me on the private markets panel and i was talking to everyone and you know this is a very etf centric crowd and the etf crowd nowadays loves to like kind of make fun and, and joke about the early days of ETFs, you'd go meet with people and they would say, what's an ETF? Like EFT, like I don't really understand. And, and nowadays kind of everyone knows what it is. And they were talking about that. And I said, first of all, of this couple hundred people in the audience, how many of you know what QSBS is? And there was like zero hands went up. There was one hand, it was Jason Buck. And he's a friend of mine. And I was talking to him about it the night before. So he doesn't count. So literally zero people. And I said, look, you know, there's five reasons in my head 
We'll see if I can remember them of why every single one of you in the audience who's a public markets person should be spending time, not a full time, but at least spending some time in the private market space. The first one was liquidity. So what you just said is, is I'm not talking about the illiquidity, liquidity discount, right? Valuations go back and forth. Sometimes private stuff's cheap, sometimes expensive. You look at a lot of the LBOs, they used to be at like six times. They're talking about some of the multiples now they're at 12. So, but, but the point you made about being stuck in a position, I've totally changed my mind on. Like, I think it's the biggest benefit of being a private market long-term investor. Let me list off the other four and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. Second was access. So, and I don't mean like, hey, can you get into Sequoia or something, but hey, do you even see opportunities? And in some cases, entire asset classes like farmland, you can't really invest in easily publicly with the exception of Acre Trader and others. Breadth. So as a quant, I love like lots of choices. And I think there's a couple thousand stocks in the US, but there's like 15,000 VCs funded deals like per year. And there's millions of private companies. So it's like oh, just way more choices. How many is that? Three. Four was taxes. We talked about QSBS. Listeners, we're not going to spend any time on it, but Google it. And then fifth, I had to be careful saying this because we we're in public market group. I said, public markets, you can't act on inside information. In private markets, there's only inside information. You know, and then everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa it's mad. we got to... Inside information is probably the wrong way to describe it. Like, we don't, we, we don't want to pick up any red flags here. But saying is like, you get to look around a corner when you see some of the information that you would otherwise be ignoring in only public markets. Anyway, any thoughts? All great points. Uh, you know, to emphasize that the last point, there is no Reg FD with with private companies, and you know, we saw that firsthand with some of our private investments at Raging Capital. We actually had an investment in a uh, it was a, a building related company that had come out of bankruptcy and restructured and was private. And uh, you know, having the ability to see their financials and trends in the business informed our view on. A bunch of public names, including Builders First Source, which was our largest position for you know a number of years, and a, a great investment. And the best part about it also is that it's extremely optimistic and inspiring versus public markets, which are almost always negative news. Like you're talking to like entrepreneurs and people trying to change the world. It's a much happier place to be than hanging out in public markets, which are almost all negative. But you talk about this, I've heard on a on another show where you said, look. One of the benefits also of investing in VC companies is the ability to do uh, co-investing deals too, right? And so getting to see opportunities you just wouldn't see otherwise. Yeah. Uh, you know, the public markets are inherently short-term oriented. You know, I, I, uh, you know one of my, my favorite examples is we were invested in a company called Shape Security for probably five or six years, and they ended up selling for a billion dollars to F5 Networks. And it was a fantastic investment. I was a board observer and I would, you know, go out to Palo Alto for meetings. And I think Shape in, you know, five or six years maybe hit like 25% of their budget numbers. <laughs> and, you know, I couldn't imagine owning that stock and having to be an analyst or PM and sit in investment meetings and be like, oh, they missed another quarter. Like, what now? Why do we still own this stock? And yet they kept blocking and tackling and building. And, it was directionally correct. It wasn't perfect every quarter, but they were building something very valuable and moving the ball down the field steadily. Yeah. Let's talk about one of your big private investments that you have held on to that's done well, um, which is Toast. For the listeners, I don't know if anyone may or may not know what Toast is. I just gave, by the way, my wife 
for Valentine's Day. This goes to show where we are in our years of being married in a relationship. It's like all she wanted was these like butter crocks that actually sit on the counter and there's like water in them. So the butter stays room temperature. I know all my European listeners already are like, you Americans, what are you talking about? We already put butter in, on the on the counter, but uh, it's like the coolest thing ever. But okay, so Toast, tell us about what was the original story behind you getting involved? Because I know you were an early investor and then uh, kind of walk us through what's transpired with that company since. I like how you tied the butter to the toast there. That was... Yeah, well, you know, I'm trying to eat less bread anyway, but it's hard because a French, we have a new office in Manhattan Beach and directly across the street is a new French bakery. And every morning they have like a hundred pastries, not just like four or five, it's like a hundred. And so it's going to be a challenge with keeping my weight and glucose levels in a, in line. But anyway, let's hear about toast. What do they do? Yeah. So, you know, one of our great investments still own it. It was a QSBS investment. Oh man. You know, it, uh, so, so even better, as you mentioned, I have an entrepreneurial background and, you know, I've been fortunate, you know, as an entrepreneur, like I've made relationships with a lot of other entrepreneurs. I've been able to connect with them. I, I can offer something to them in terms of value of my experience and, and some of the wisdom that I have, you know, so that's been a big part for, of us and, and for me personally sourcing those type of venture opportunities is leveraging those entrepreneurial connections. And, you know, a number of years back, I was introduced to one of the most impressive entrepreneurs I've ever run across, a gentleman out of Boston named Steve Papa, who had started uh, and sold a company called Indeca uh, to Oracle for about a billion dollars and uh, had taken all the money that he made on Indeca, which was a project that started in, I think, 99 or early 2000. So it was a, it was a 10-year project for him. But basically took all that money and invested in like and seeded roughly six other companies, which were in most cases guys coming out of Indeca with new ideas. And uh, you know, I met Steve through a mutual connection here in Princeton because uh, he was down at the university speaking a lot, and we kind of hit it off. And I realized I just wanted to be in business with Steve. I actually thought one of his other ideas was potentially the big idea, and. Toast came along and they were focused on building a point of sale solution for restaurants, uh, which, you know, from a high level is a, even today, a very crowded space. There's a lot of players and both legacy and modern, but they had uh, built out an amazing engineering team and uh, were very early at spotting the opportunity around being cloud-based and the traditional VCs weren't interested in funding them because there just literally were too many players and they couldn't figure out who was going to win. And, uh, you know, for me, it was a bet on Steve. I just wanted to be in business with Steve. And it was a bet on the team thinking that they could attract the best engineering talent in Boston. And they were just going to iterate the products faster than everyone else in the market and win. And it's turned out to be, you know, far more than that. Today, the company. Uh, is worth around $10 billion. They've got a billion dollars of cash in the balance sheet. They've got, you know, a billion dollars plus of revenue. And they, uh, you know, have 75,000 restaurants around the United States that use their solution. And uh, it's just been, you know, an amazing story and very proud that we were the first institutional investor in the company. So we did a Twitter poll, as I love to do. And I asked people, I said, you know, do you establish any sort of sell criteria when you initiate a position in a fund or a a security, then obviously it's like 90% don't. Like they buy something and they just kind of wing it. And we say, this is, you know, often important to think through ahead of time. Usually everyone thinks 
because of the stuff that goes wrong or goes bad. You know, I buy a stock at 100, it goes down to 80, it goes down to 60. Like, what do I do? But also, like, you kind of got to think about it for the stuff that goes way right. So you got to double a 10 bagger, whatever it may be, your criteria, but every 50 bagger was once a 10 or a five bagger. And so not so specific because obviously you hold it, but for winners and things that are going right um, that you can sell. So like if you're locked up, doesn't matter. Doesn't, you know, <laughs> you don't have a choice, but for public stocks or whatever, how do you think about that? Um, as something becomes a larger part of your portfolio, you know, for investors, maybe a five or 10% position all of a sudden becomes 20, 30, 50. Do you have any hard advice or is it a little more, it depends on the situation? How do you think about it? Great question. You know, when we ran uh, the hedge fund, uh, we obviously were very disciplined around portfolio construction and, and sizing. And we had limits that, you know, our investors, you know, expected us to stay within. And for the most part, that was a very good, healthy, you know, forcing discipline. In a few outliers, you mentioned Facebook early on. You know, one of the reasons we were big sellers of Facebook was it just went up too much. And uh, you know, in retrospect, I should have you know side pocketed some of those assets and just allowed investors to opt in and kind of keep keep the ride going. So you know, on a personal level, um, you know, it's uh, the risk tolerance is is different. I'm I'm comfortable having fewer eggs in the basket and watching the basket more closely. But at the same time, it's it's my family and it is my net worth and it's my kids' future and and so you know that that risk you know that hurdle rate is is very high too and so you know in the case of Toast that was a you know an outsized winner and I've sold some of that because it was just too big but I've really worked hard even though I want to trade it <laughs> I've worked hard to hold it because I'm a believer in the company and. You know, over the last you know year or two since we distributed the stock from the fund, I've actually been using covered calls quite actively to kind of trade around it, capture some of the vol, uh, while keeping kind of that core you know position with my core fundamental view on the company. I think my personal approach to this, and it doesn't sound that scientific from a quant, but is um, all about sort of mental health optimization, or I guess Bezos would call it regret minimization. But, you know, thinking about a, an investment that goes wild to the upside, everyone wants to think in binary terms. Should I sell it all? Or should I keep it? And, you know, we always talk about going halvesies or scaling in and out, and it never feels satisfying, you know, because people, they want to cheer for the Broncos or they want to cheer for, you know, what's happening, the who's, uh, just pour a little out for this tournament performance, my goodness, Virginia. But they want to cheer for something, right? And it feels very unsatisfying to say, oh, just peel off 10%. And if it goes up some more, you can sell another 10%. If it goes up some more, you sell another 10%. Because people always look back with hindsight bias and be like, oh my God, I shouldn't have sold that Facebook. But there's a great Jim Simons from uh, Renaissance, the mathematician and hedge fund manager. He has a quote where he says, I can make the cliche either way. And for those of us who have been done this long enough, you can look back and we have examples on both sides right? Where he said, well, I should have held that or I should have sold it. But the outcome, uh, you never know. Future's uncertain. Yeah. For every person who held Facebook or Bitcoin from the beginning, there's a lot of uh, securities that haven't done so well that they've held, you know, hoping it's the next Facebook. And, uh, you know, probably a lot of money and opportunity costs has been lost there. I'm a big fan of kind of feeding the birdies. You sell when you can, not when you have to. And when things are really good, you, you feed the birdies a little bit, sell a little bit of stock. And you can always, you know, like you said, split the baby. If you're facing a really tough decision, then sell a quarter of it and think about it again in a month. 
you don't have to be a hundred percent on everything. Yeah. People beat themselves up so much about it. And we see with our funds too, more people, as much as I hate to say it, listeners, I think the pros are just as bad as uh, the individuals on chasing performance. So we see it in all of our funds, uh, sadly as well on both sides. All right. Well, let's talk about the world today. We kind of walked through the past few years, COVID shenanigans, Silicon Valley Bank. First quarter, we're, we're writing the books, uh, closing the books on first quarter in about an hour. So listeners, we're recording this last day of March. What's the world look like to you today? A lot of opportunity, a lot of danger, minefields. Where, uh, where are you looking? You know, rewinding back to 2022, you know, got hit a bit early in the year. Then I kind of figured out what was going on in the markets and was, you know, much more disciplined in terms of making sure I had some shorts on, making sure I was writing covered calls or, or kind of flipping the winners when you get those rallies. And I've just been really playing it, you know, in bear, you know, bear market mode. And, uh, that's my mindset. I continue to think valuations are, you know, relatively high across the board. And, you know, we continue to face headwinds in terms of the economy rolling over and recession at some point. There's just a lot of money still floating around out there. So that's been kind of my mindset. That said, you know, particularly for a long short investor, it is an environment with increasing dispersion. And I think that's good for opportunities. If you think about certain sectors like technology and healthcare and biotech specifically, you know, a lot of those sectors have been in bear markets for almost two years now, right? And it was a lot of them peaked out in early 21. And so there's a lot of, at least for guys like me who like to dumpster dive, there's a lot of beaten down stuff too that you can go, you know, hunt through and, and look. And then yet at, on the flip side, there's a lot of pockets of the market, you know, late cycle industrial type companies, construction type companies that haven't felt any pain. So to the extent you're willing to, now that you don't have any OPM, what are some ideas? On You can start on the long or short side. I like following you because often my favorite fund managers to follow typically are the ones where I look at some of the names. I'm like, I haven't even heard of any of these names, but you want to start on the long or the short side? Where do you want to begin? I'll talk some longs. I, again, you know, I like small mid caps and I'm an entrepreneur by nature. So you know, a lot of my investing is through that lens. But you know, two names that you know, fit into that kind of broken stock category are Somalogic and Alpha Wave, which trades in London. Somalogic was a SPAC, ten dollars. Today trades around two and a half. Uh, they raised you know over five hundred million dollars of cash. They trade below cash today, and they have a platform for proteomics research. Uh, have great people around the organization. They have a critical mass of revenues. They've got a good runway with the balance sheet. Uh, they've got great customers like Novartis and Amgen. And I think long-term proteomics is the next frontier and they have a leading edge platform and have an opportunity to be one of the big winners. Um, Nearer term, what's exciting to me is they partnered with Illumina last year and they've been developing a module uh, that will Illumina uh, plans to launch broadly later this year, early next year, that is based on Somalogic's system. And so uh, that has the potential to be you know, a really big driver of the business and visibility for Somalogic. One of the things you've talked about over the years that I found very interesting as a former reformed biotech guy, that's what I was. I was a biotech engineer in Virginia, but uh, you for many years had been a participant in sort of biotech, but often from the short side. And so that almost like venture in many cases, it seems like in many of these companies, almost like very binary outcomes, you know, and many of them, much like venture sort of numbers fail. 
What's your approach to sort of sourcing the ideas here? Uh, you know, because as a self-proclaimed non-biotech scientist, you know, but you guys had a very strong track record historically with finding opportunity and, and um, yeah, shorting names too. What? How do you think about this space? Yeah, well, uh, you know, specifically, uh, Somalogic is not a biotech. It's a it's a tool maker for proteomics research. So, you know, very very different business model does not have that binary risk, although. The technology is rapidly evolving, and so there is technology risk in the market for sure. Agree with you, uh, you know, on the biotech side. If you want to focus on frauds and kind of low quality companies and uh, you know, kind of low probability, you know, uh, type opportunities, uh, there's a very long tail out there, and we generated an enormous amount of alpha over many years shorting some of those lower quality names. And why? I mean, that seems like such a strange, on first glance, such a strange place if you're going to do fraud and just make things. But is it because like you can kind of get away with not anyone understanding what you're talking about if you're like going to try to be a huckster? Like what, why would people gravitate towards this part of the world or sector industry? Yeah, you, you build a narrative and uh, there's a lot of kind of single molecule companies. And unlike the big, you know, diverse pharmaceutical companies that have big diverse pipelines who will look at a molecule objectively, and if it doesn't have, you know, a chance, they will shoot it and they'll shoot it quickly and move on because it's a waste of their time and, and resources. But, you know, these single molecule companies, the board's making money, management's making money. You know, everyone is wed to kind of keeping that story alive. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate. And there's a lot of, you know, retail investors and also passive money out there that just kind of buys, you know, a lot of these stocks sort of blindly on the hope because, you know, a lot of the a lot of the ideas sound do sound amazing, right? I mean, it's a it's an area where you can build a lot of sex into your pitch. Yeah. There's the old book. I, I think I may have read it even at Virginia called the billion dollar molecule that was about vertex, I think. And vertex, I think, has been like a 30 bagger since then. But a fun story on, I mean, it's really outdated because the world's changed a lot in, in 20 years, but it was a fun look inside that whole drug discovery process, you know, in kind of one of the early golden age of, of that industry. All right. So, Somalogic, you know, the SPAC, you know, we did a post kind of as SPAC started to take off and said, look, this is just a structure. But historically speaking, it's been a structure that doesn't have a great track record. And Loosehold had a chart, um, some of our favorite quants from Minnesota, and they looked at like the historical SPAC return. It was like minus 70% on average. So not even like flat or whatever it was. It was just like absolutely one of the best cash incinerators in the world. And this cycle, sadly, seems to be you know in line with that. But as you mentioned, we're kind of on the other side of that. And there is some opportunity in ones that have just been kind of destroyed and left for dead. It's not traditionally been a great, uh, you know, a great sector. We just had money raining from the skies there in, in 2021. And it, it had to go somewhere, I suppose. But I've been shocked because I, you know, I have a list, five, 600 names. And uh, I've been shocked that how few names kind of <laughs> meet even a, a a low bar you know there's maybe a dozen or two names on that list that you know i think are are interesting so many of them are science projects and just not right for the public markets some logic we'll see but you know it it, it uh it has a lot of attributes that to me make it one of the more interesting ones i remember back in the day again this keeps rewinding me back many years but biotech in in that kind of broad industry in general so 
medical technology can often go through about a three, four year cycle booms and busts just on the sector in general. And times you have entire baskets of companies that are trading at or below cash and people always scratch their head and they're like, well, why is that? It seems like a free call option. And it can be in some scenarios, but in some scenarios, they just burn so much damn money that it's, you know, yes, you're at cash, but there's not going to be any more cash in a year or two. So finding ones that do have a, a, you know, a potential runway and exit, I think could be hugely profitable and is a good screen to start thinking about in general. Unless you have any more ideas on this one, let's, uh, let's hear about another one. Sure. Well, the second one I was going to talk about in in you know similar ilk is Alpha Wave, which is a London traded company. They went IPO in 2021, which was not a great time. They're down probably about 70% from those that peak. They have solutions that enable connectivity at the leading edge uh, for semiconductor makers. And uh, you know, as Moore's law runs into headwinds increasingly, the techniques that semiconductor makers are using, things like chiplets and memory pooling all rely on having you know, faster connectivity at the die level. Uh, and these are one of the, this company, AlphaWave, is one of the few companies that has leading edge technology there. It's around 300 million in revenues, growing at a very fast rate. It's profitable. They have fantastic customers, a lot of work with a lot of the hyperscale guys. And it's just an example of another name that you know, I think is really well positioned you know, from a secular point of view long term, but has just been left for dead you know, in, in this market over the last year. Both these have something I love. Like I, I, despite being a quant, I still have a very soft spot. I love things that are down a lot. We did some old research. We did some old, re- and I know it's probably not the best place to for me to screen. Like historically, momentum tends to do better than the stuff that's down a lot on average. But if there tends to be a lot of very fertile ground to sift through the wreckage uh, and the detritus. But we we did an old study that looked at buying sectors and industries. They were down, I think, 70, 80, 90%. And on average, you close your eyes, hold your nose, and, and hold it for three, five years. It tends to be positive alpha, largely because of, I think, career risk and people saying, I don't want to show anyone that I own this after it's down 80%. But uh, on the individual stock levels, I love looking for these, but it also has got a great ticker. AWE, all, that's a good ticker. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a ticker fan, so well done. We're trying to find the next momentum stocks for you. They have they have to start somewhere. On the short side, you know, I, I think a name that could go down a lot uh, is uh, is Coinbase, which is a bit of a lightning rod. But kind of excited to chat about that one. Yeah, well, you're a short seller. You guys are always lightning rods. I mean, come on, man. Like that's uh, that's part of the job description. I haven't done a lot in crypto, but I you know I followed it, and obviously there's been a lot of heat around it in recent years. And I you know I think. There's been a lot of debate over the last couple of years. You know, what is the government's policy on crypto going to be? And uh, when Gary Gensler first came in the SEC, uh, you know, he had been teaching a class at MIT about crypto. You know, people thought he'd be sympathetic to crypto and that this was uh, going to be a, a great opportunity where we have regulatory clarity. And I think as we've seen things play out, it's it's actually going the other direction. And you know, I'm not sure how closely you followed Coinbase just in recent weeks, but They've run into a number of issues, you know, namely Silvergate and Signature Bank were two important partners for them to access the US dollar-based banking system. Both have been, you know, shut down. And so that's just a significant issue for the crypto industry broadly and, and Coinbase specifically. And then secondly, you know, last week Coinbase received a Wells notice, which you know, I know a lot of the crypto retail guys don't know what a Wells notice is, but you know, Meb, I know you've been around the block. I know it's not good. 
And it's in, and that not saying not good is, is kind of an understatement, right? Yeah. For a, a broker dealer, uh, a Wells notice is like a death knell and, uh, it's not good news. And I, I think importantly, you know, what it says is that for the sec to send a Wells notice to Coinbase, Gensler would have had to sign off on that. Gensler likely consulted with treasury and Janet Yellen before sending something of that magnitude. And my guess is consulted with a broader Biden administration. And so I think you're seeing what the government's policy on crypto is, which is to really, really tighten it up. And, uh, you know, effectively Coinbase is at war with the SEC and the government today and what, what the prevailing policies are. And I, I don't think that's a good place to be for, you know, a shareholder. What's the kind of the bull case? Is it that it's the least awful place to put your crypto? If you're, you know, I mean, seeing Fidelity come out seems to me like a huge competitive risk for someone like Coinbase because Fidelity, as we know, is like a giant of when I think of safety and security and old, boring, also high fee funds, but we'll ignore that part. But just old, boring brokerage. I want to trust with my money. Like I feel like people think of Fidelity and maybe doesn't attract the younger cohort as much, but the older cohort has more money. So what's the kind of the bull case? Is it just like they're the big name in the crypto bull? Besides the obvious kind of crypto bull case, you know, the recent argument of the bulls is that, oh, this is actually, you know, good because the company will have an opportunity to get uh, visibility and what the regulatory framework is going to be. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can see that argument. I, I just would counter it and say, this is going to take, you know, a lot of time, a lot of energy and, you know, multiple years most likely to play out. And there's a lot of risk there. And so, you know, the company has a big market cap. They're burning cash. The balance sheet's okay, but deteriorating. You know, I think there's a lot of risk there. And frankly, you know, I'm just a believer that a lot of the activity we saw in crypto was a speculative blow off. And that's, you know, a good portion of their business was tied to that. And the other reality is like geopolitics, you know, have shifted a lot in a very short period of time also. And, you know, there's a lot of scrutiny and focus on the US dollar reserve status and you know, potential risk around that. And I, I just think all those things tie into the policy is being clarified in a way that is not good for, you know, these companies, particularly Coinbase. Yeah. Still like a 15 billion market cap. You know, one of the things we, we spent a little more time on the last chat listeners, so go back and, and pair it with this one about the mechanics of short selling. You know, short selling for most people is, is really hard, like you mentioned, even on Silicon Valley Bank, but other names. You can be right, but you got to think about timing. You get these face rippers. So position sizing is really important, but also you have things like um, the cost to borrow the shares or even finding them. For, for most of the time these days, are you doing outright shorts or express it through options or is it kind of both? Well, I uh, managing my personal capital, I have graduated to a much simpler and smaller short book, uh, which is good for the stress level. It's good for the family. So, you know, I might be short, you know, half a dozen or a dozen names at a time. Back when we were running the fund, we would have, you know, 50 or 60 or 70 shorts because to your point, you know, we needed to have a lot of diversity and really tightly manage those position sizes from a risk point of view. So, so I spend time on it, but it's uh, not what it used to be. Yeah. We often talk about, you know, shorts get such a bad rap and I'm trying to, def- even though I'm not a short seller, I try to defend them all throughout my kind of career. And we've had a lot of short sellers on the podcast. I love them because they're all about to screw loose somewhere, right? You kind of have to, to be a good short seller. 
So what, what would be your advice to the listeners other than just don't do it? It's too much work. It's, uh, but they're kind of the, the short sellers in my mind are like the immune system of free markets, right? Like they find the bad actors, they get rid of them. And if you don't, you know, you've seen people call this like the golden age of fraud the past number of years with easy money. So if you didn't have the short sellers, the amount of corporate shenanigans that'd be going on would just be limitless. What's your advice? So somebody who's on here, who's not a pro has been doing it for 10 years, but well, it's been nice uh, so far that, you know, even the politicians this time around, uh, you know, we've gotten some positive shout outs on Capitol Hill talking about, uh, you know, tw- Twitter users and short sellers who identified Silicon Valley Bank from public filings, whereas the regulators, you know, totally missed it. Right. So, yes, to your point, they serve a valuable role in the ecosystem. And, you know, you'd ask uh, in prep for this interview, like, what are some non consensus views you have? And, and I would say that, you know, I would focus on short selling. I do think there is, uh, you know, a lot of market inefficiency there, and there's an opportunity to build a nice business and to make nice profits. But, you know, I realize most people aren't going to short stocks. But I think just from a investing uh, discipline point of view, I think it's important even for long only investors to short a stock here or there, be able to articulate the bear case, and even in some cases, you know, put it to work. I think it will make you a better long investor having that discipline and that ability to be intellectually you know, honest and flexible. I think what you just described is one of the most important points of this entire podcast, where we talked earlier, we said, look, you should be involved in private markets. Listeners, go sign up for every syndicate on AngelList. You don't have any money to work, just review them and you'll learn a lot and start to understand and get informed and look around the corner. But also on the short side, like keeping you honest, it's such a good point where so many people... And so we know the psychology of this, right? The old famous was going to hold up a mug. Uh, I don't know if it was Kahneman, Tversky, whoever it was, Thaler. I think it was Thaler, maybe. He's coming back on the podcast in about two weeks. But they were talking about like, you know, what you would pay for a mug. And then once you have the mug, well, how much would you sell it for? Or what would you pay for then, right? It's like a totally different psychological attachment. And it happens with stocks, of course. And so being able to think, hey, a good analyst like 101 is like your longest stock. Okay, well, what's the bear case? Like, can I at least mentally understand it? But we had um, a good podcast with short seller Mark Cajodes where he told a story about a stock he was short, kind of wrote it down, sold it, but like eventually sat down with the CEO and the CEO was like explaining to him some part of the business that was, you know, neglected, but had a lot of potential. And he's like, oh, wait, like, I didn't even see this part. This is actually, if they go this route, like a great long, and then eventually flipped and became a long only shareholder. I think it's really important. And I don't think enough people do it or for a lot of obvious reasons, but it's hard. It's a lot of fun though, too. Yeah. It's way more fun to get a short ride than to get a long ride, I think. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I'd you know, describe short selling as fun, but it's, uh, <laughs> it's something to do. It's <laughs> because I only do it with imaginary money. I don't do it with real money. Like I love, I love kind of exposing the bad actors in the asset management world on Twitter and elsewhere. But individual stocks, it's, it's the too hard pile for me as a quant. So let's talk about one more name. We got a, we got a few minutes before I let you into the uh, Friday evening happy hour um, on the East Coast. What uh, any other names that are popping up? I know you talked about a few. What do you got? I'll talk about you know one more one more long for you Liberty Sirius which is a more traditional kind of deep value play it's part of the Liberty Media complex so it's a tracking stock that controls an 82% interest in Sirius XM and a 30% plus interest in Live Nation 
we think it's really interesting here. It's really trading at a double discount in, in my mind. You know, the first discount is, you know, Sirius stock has been down a bunch this year. They've been suffering because our sales have been down, advertising's under pressure. They also are going through a CapEx cycle, which is, you know, temporarily depressing free cash flows. But we think that business is really attractively priced here. And you're able through Liberty Sirius to buy that stock effectively at a 35% plus discount. And so we think that's really interesting. And moving forward, um, you know, we think there's a number of catalysts who, you know, start to shrink that discount and ultimately eliminate it. Liberty will be spinning out Live Nation this quarter, most likely, which should help to narrow that discount. And ultimately, we expect the two entities to be collapsed, meaning you'll just get serious shares directly, which when that happens, uh, that discount will go to go away altogether. And uh, years ago, I used to own another Liberty ent- entity that owned DirecTV. And uh, you know, in the morning when that uh, was collapsed into one entity, it was a very nice day. I was on satellite radio this week. It was actually a fairly poor performance on my part. It was very early in the morning, which I, I don't do a good job with. Is the bear case that everything is going digital podcast straight to your phone? And, and the, the, like, well, what's the bear case for the, the stock? I'd say the primary bear case is the kind of longer term obsolescence around you know, having a mobile phone and being able to stream your own Apple Music or stream podcasts. And yeah, you know, I... I think there certainly has been fragmentation of the landscape. I spend a lot of time in my car listening to podcasts like yours, Matt. So that's time away from SiriusXM. But you know, that said, uh, you know, I think SiriusXM really understands the long tail in a you know fantastic way, not dissimilar to the early days of the cable industry where they have these little affinity groups, whether it's you know the community around Bruce Springsteen or you know, Dave Matthews, which are, you know, both channels that I love listening to and you can't get live concerts and you can't get that content anywhere else. And, you know, they literally have a hundred plus channels like that. And so I think it's a very persistent business. Churn rates have been extraordinarily low. Uh, there's a tremendous amount of cash flow and, you know, operating leverage in the business. And they are developing, you know, the streaming side. You know, they have an app. Uh, they're actually one of the largest, you know, podcast ad sellers and they own a lot of podcasts outright. So, yeah, there's a whole platform there as well. Here was my billion dollar idea that I proposed to them, not directly, but through a host, uh, Jeremy Schwartz, who's CIO at Wisdom Tree, um, has a show on, on uh, their platform. And I said, Jeremy, I don't understand why they don't reach out to top 500 podcasts, top 1,000 podcasts, whatever it is, and say, you know what? We're going to have a whole handful of theme channels. So it could be an investing channel. It could be a real estate, women's fashion, whatever, all these verticals. And we're going to reach out to the podcaster and say, hey, look, I don't even think they'd have to pay them. I think they'd just say, look, we'll repurpose your podcast. It'll increase your reach massively. Uh, Maybe we'll give you, I don't know, 10% of the ad revenue as like a goodwill or something. And they could curate the top shows from the podcast space. And I think most of the hosts would be totally happy to do it. Now, the Rogans and the ringers of the world, maybe not. And he said, that's a great idea. I'll tell him this is like five years ago. And I don't know. All right, so now there's your catalyst. You can tell them they, uh, they could have a whole podcast series of channels and they don't, even have, they don't have to pay the host. That's the big part. They just say, look, we'll do a partnership. We'll give you 10% of revenue or something. I guarantee you they'll do it. Anyway. When you do an activist campaign, let me, you can say, call it the MEB idea. 
So that's interesting. Okay. You know, and that whole Liberty group, I feel like has been a, you know, a one to one to follow over the years as well. We're starting to get long in the tooth here. I want to hear, I know last time we asked you, we said, what's your most memorable investment, but your fun letter from 2020, you had a list of some highlights, you know, over your career on the long short side. I'd love to hear about, uh, you know, one or two or three, how many of you want to talk about some of these ideas that were particularly memorable. I mean, some of these involve murder. Some of them involved bribing doctors with fentanyl. I mean, like, it's like a, you need your own documentary series just on some of these companies, like Diary of a Short Seller. What are some of the most memorable ones that uh, you you've, uh, can recall? Well, there's, there's certainly, I mean, we, we touched on Facebook and we touched on Toast today. I mean, they were, they were great winners and, you know, we worked really hard to get an edge, you know, on those type of opportunities and, and we're able to, you know, kind of stick with them. And in a lot of cases, particularly with Facebook, like we came back to the well multiple times over many years and traded it well. You know, Valiant definitely sticks out there just because it was such a high profile, like a Silicon Valley bank. You know, we weren't on Twitter back then because we had compliance issues, but you know, we were short that from you know $170 down. And, you know, it was actually a good example. You know, people say, well, you can only make hundred percent shorting a stock. You know, it can only go from to zero. And it actually proved that you can short Valiant at 170, you can short some more at 120, you can short some more at 70, you can short some more at 35, and you might still be able to be short the stock today. But that's a big misconception that listeners, um, people always say you can only make 100%, but actually the way the math works, uh, you could absolutely short more as the as the position goes down. Yeah. So that, w- that was a fun one. You know, uh, Insys Pharma was uh, a really profitable short, but just uh, what a travesty. Uh, they were a company that uh, was basically proved in court and the management team and a lot of the top salespeople went to jail for a long time, but it took the wheels of justice a long time for this to happen. But they were effectively bribing doctors to prescribe fentanyl. And, you know, we now know today, you know, how dangerous fentanyl it is. It's a massive problem for the country. But you know, seven or eight years ago, fentanyl was really for cancer breakout pain. You know, it was prescribed to a small you know, number of folks, and these guys uh, working to commercialize it and make it more broadly available. And you know, again, bribing doctors, and a lot of those patients, you know, ended up with you know terrible addiction problems, and in a lot of cases, they died. And uh, just you know, some of the worst actors that you can you can come across. Yeah, I mean, again, like. When people think of short sellers, like think about who's going to unearth this. It's it's never the regulators. I mean, and so these stories in many cases can be like not just like ha ha funny. It's a crappy company. They're they don't you know their product sucks. It's actually very real world. You know, life and death impact. Uh, Both with that one and and other ones. I mean, we we would share our work with you know, we attempted to share it with regulators, obviously, but, you know, reporters and investigative journalists, and we, we would try to get the word out. And, uh, you know, number of instances where, you know, like you said earlier, that's, that's a really healthy part of the ecosystem. Yeah. We've been at this for a while, man. Um, I've, uh, I've had a blast catching up with you. We got you know, your thoughts, things we didn't cover today where you're like, you know what, Meb, we got to include this because we didn't, uh, we didn't, we didn't touch on it. Anything come to mind? Well, you know, it's interesting. I've been uh, I've been reading a great book that like pulls together a lot of things that I've as I've gotten a little older, I've been thinking about. 
there's a book by uh, Rick Rubin, the the music producer, called The Creative Act, and uh, you know he he spent seven or eight years writing about it, uh, writing this book. He's done a couple podcasts on it. If you don't want to read the book, but the book is beautiful. It's got seventy six really short little chapters that are really easy to read and enjoyable to read. And it's all about the artistic and creative process, and specifically kind of getting outside of yourself and just kind of being at one with the nature and world and your body and your mind. And uh, it's such an interesting book. And it really, to me, connects back to being an entrepreneur and an investor. You know, I think about, you know, George Soros, you know, talking about how, you know, over time, he would start listening to his body when he had a trade on. And if his back started to hurt, he knew <laughs> that, you know, maybe he should be covering part of it because there was something going wrong and just being able to listen to other parts of your body. And that's certainly something, again, as I've gotten older, like I too, you know, I, I try to think about things over multiple days. I try to sleep on things. I try to let kind of that, that sub mind do work. And I try to listen to my body. And, you know, one of the benefits of not having a hedge fund is, you know, I, I'm in the office a lot, but I don't have to be in the office. And so just trying to like tap into that other layer where there's something happening here, there's something going on. I should be in the office working on this, or you know what? You know, today's a better day to go, you know, catch up on podcasts and go for a walk. Like I don't need to, to push it, right? Go hang with my four month old. Congrats, Mazel Tov, by the way. Thank you. I, I, anyway, I recommend that book. It's a it's a fascinating and very quick read. There's an old Rick Rubin um, interview. I think he did it with Tim Ferriss, but they literally record it from like a sauna, I think. And I may be getting this wrong, but I think I'm directionally correct. And but the, the best part about Rick, I say that as if I know him, but but Rick, um, he would ask him a question and you would just hear this, hmm. And then it'd be like a 10 second pause, which most people, you know, are very uncomfortable with. They'd start jabbering, but then he would just like, he would take time to think. And like, it's just like the, the, such a different mind he has. Um, so I just queued up the book on Amazon. I may do it as a, as an audio book. I don't really do audio books, but I think he would be a fun one to listen to if he's the reader. I'll check it out. All right. Well, listeners, Raging Ventures on Twitter, Raging Capital Ventures online. Uh, any other places to find you? You have a new series where you're writing um, some interviews with other entrepreneurs as well. Yep. I just check out the Twitter feed and the website. Thank you so much for having me today, Meb. Bill, it's been a blast. Uh, thanks so much. Awesome. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.